Well, Trevor, being a light-skinned dude, he's able to be a chameleon in many spaces. So even though he's not able to be able to fit in and be the star of his spaces, he's able to blend into the background and use language to his advantage. I still think the point that he's making is beautiful. And I do uh, wish and, you know, that we spent more time learning multiple languages because we can speak multiple languages. I think it's dope. I think I think I don't. He's very intelligent to be able to do that. Yeah, his mom did a good job uh, preparing him and equipping him with all the tools that he needs to be successful. Absolutely. In all of these spaces. Absolutely. And it's it's probably, you know, her her struggle in general and her search for stability that she's been searching for her whole life. You know, she's like very intentional about having him, very intentional about raising him and intentional about like, you know, my son is not is not going to uh, have to like learn the hard way. Uh, he, he, I'm going to teach him what he needs to do. damn right, because after I throw him out this bus, he going to know the hard way, damn it. Once I throw him, he going <laughs> to... He got to run from grown-ass men. He, he going to know the hard way. He going to know these streets. He going to want these books. <laughs> have you ever read a good book that was thought-provoking and wanted to share it with your friends? Well, you come to the right place because that's what we do here. Welcome to the Bruz Bookshelf with your hosts, Lennon Givens, Walter Atkins, and Dr. Harvey Hinton III, a real talk book review podcast where we give you our raw commentary on our thoughts. Enjoy. Welcome back to another episode of the Bruz Bookshelf. This week, we're going to be starting Trevor Noah's Born a Crime. I'm your host, Lennon Gibbons, and we have Brother Donovan Snipe. What up, though? Dr. Harvey Hinton. And we're back. Born a Crime. It's going to be a good one tonight. Get ready. Get yep. ready. Get ready. Then we have rejoining us, Brother Stephen Gilliam. What's up, y'all? What's up? What's up? So, man, what y'all think about this book so far? This book was hilarious to me. It's hilarious, man. It's hilarious. It's hilarious. Like, hilarious. Get home. I don't know. It was, I liked it. So I wasn't necessarily expecting to like it like I did, but I did. I thought it was going to be like, you know, I don't know. I was going to be drab and like, oh, yeah, it's hard growing up as a mixed child in this country where you are going to be mixed and that is that, that, that. But no, it was, it's a, it's a black boy story and. It's one I can relate to, so I liked it. Yeah, it's definitely a black boy story, and um, you know, I'm 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 a member of Team Light Skin. You know, it's something that I don't personally dwell in, but I know it exists. And even within my own self and my own bias, I'm reading this story, and I'm like checking myself about what I thought about this dude, because you know. The dude, you know, on TV, Trevor Noah is extremely articulate. He's funny. He has a lot of range. And I enjoy his presentation. But for some reason, yeah, I question his blackness because he's team light-skinned, right? Nah, but when you read his story, that is, that is a black boy story. Oh, very rude. But that's, that's, that's life in the South. And that's, that's part of our programming, you know? Somebody so, who's half light-skinned, I'm almost offended by that. <laughs> what half the palms <laughs> no, 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 I, I can't I can't deny that it's not part of his draw and what gets him on television you know what I'm saying and and that's that's part of the the western equation here but like I say man that is extremely a black boy story and it's hilarious it's smart I've been I've been ready to talk about this one um just because there's so many so many different angles to discuss this book because it's, it's so it's so detailed. Yeah, I, I'm gonna put on my bad guy hat. Uh, I hated this book, like <laughs> <laughs> completely. I felt like I was watching a Daily Show commercial, but it just kept going and going and going. <laughs> like, That's what it is. No, no, you're right. That's what it is. Keep going. That's if, what it is. If it wasn't for the voices, I would have been like. Uh, completely out of it i had to just start chapter one over like three times because i was like oh let me listen to this book next thing i know it's like two hours later 
I'm waking up with crust on my face. I'm like, okay, let me try again. Yeah. Like, I, I, this is like the anti-heavy for me. Like, this is like Trevor Noah and his agents and his publicists got together and they put this together and it's like, all right, let's leave out all the bad parts. Let's make him look good and put this out here. It's definitely Which is fine not, if that's what you want. It's definitely a contrast to heavy, but it's... it's <laughs> Bruh, I don't know about leaving out the bad parts because I think that he put a lot of bad stuff in here. He starts and, with uh, the bad part. Yeah, he starts with the bad parts. And, uh, <laughs> that was the most vanilla... That's the most vanilla uh, reaccounting of a, a kidnapping and possible murder <laughs> I've ever oh, heard of my life, man. Man, he lines it up perfectly. Know, he lines it up perfectly. Now, all right, let's get into it. Um all right. I wanna I wanna <laughs> open it up with the <laughs> I wanna open it up with the genius of apartheid was convincing people who were overwhelmingly the majority to turn on each other. Apart hate is what it was. You separate people into groups and make them hate one another so you can run them all. At the time, black South Africans outnumbered white South Africans nearly five to one, yet we were divided into different tribes with different languages. Zulu, Kosa, Twanza, Sutu, Venti, Nibele, Twanza, Pere, and more. Long before apartheid existed, these tribal <laughs> factions clashed in war with one another. Then white rule. Now you wrote them daggum African languages off, bruh. No, that can you re, can you just repeat no, the African tribes again? No, I just want to hear that. It it click. Hey, can you do click. it a little more accent? A little more accent this time. Give it a click. Dog. Give it a click, dog. Give it a click. That Klosa. Zulu. Zulu. Klosa. Twanga. You got to say Zulu with more bass than that, dog. You seen Shaka. Don't you do something like that. I, I feel like I'm watching Black Panther all over again. Oh, my God. <laughs> Zulu, Kwasa, Twanza, Sutu, Vene, Nubele, Twanza, Pele, and more. Long before apartheid existed, these tribal factions clashed and war with one another. Then white rule used their animosity to divide and conquer. All non-whites were systematically classified into various groups and subgroups. Then these groups were given different levels of rights and privileges in order to keep them at odds. Perhaps the starkest of these divisions was between the South African two dominant groups, the Zulu and the Kosa. You got it. The Zulu man is known as a warrior. He is proud. He put his head down and fights. When the colonial armies invaded, the Zulu charged into battle with nothing but spear and shield against men with guns. <laughs> the Zulus were slaughtered by the thousands, but they never stopped fighting. The Kossas, on the other hand, pride themselves on being the thinkers. My mother is Kossa, Nelson Mandela Kossa. The Kossas wage a long war against the white man. As I'm well. not saying it like that. I'm not saying it like that. <laughs> no, I'm trying to say it correctly and give them their respect. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> no. <laughs> you, gonna, you, gonna, you, you better put some respect on Shaka, though, and then Zulus, though. That's all I'm saying. All right. <laughs> all right. <laughs> the Kossas wage a long war against the white man as well. But after experience, the fertility of the battle against a better armed foe, Many Klossa's chiefs took a more nimble approach. These white people are here whether we like it or not, they said. Let's see what tools they possess and be useful to us. Instead of resisting to English, let's learn English. Well, we'll understand what the white man is saying, and we can force him to negotiate with us. The Zulu went to war with the white man. The Klossa played chess with the white man. Long before time, neither was particularly successful and each blamed the other for the problem neither had created. Bitterness festered for decades. Those feelings were held and checked by a common enemy. Then apartheid fell. Mandela walked free, and black South Africa went to war with itself. Mm, mm, mm. That's how the book started off. Steve, maybe, <laughs> maybe your gripe is that he's trying to tell a funny story about his life and infuse some factoids in there about apartheid and how it is. I did some homework. Trevor Noah was born in 1984. Mm -hmm. He said he was nine years old when this happened. So this happened in 1993. Mm -hmm. I was playing football. 
I was playing football, high school football. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Before we go into that, does that feel like a oversimplification of everything? Which is fine because this is not a history book. But like everything I know about apartheid, I pretty much learned in this book just now. And uh, right. I don't know, man. It's just like I want to hear more about that. Like it seems like there's a lot growing up in that era. It seems like that would be like dominating everything. And, you know, part of my gripe with this book is like, yo, I want to hear like it couldn't have been all funny stories during that time. Like, I want to hear a little bit more like about you in, in, I know, but I, in this context. Like, how did that affect you other than just like, OK, that happened. And then this Zulu guy got mad at my mom. Like, what? Is it? <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't get it like that. Though. I didn't get it. <laughs> and not necessarily. Archive, which I mean, although apartheid is a part of that, and it sets the backdrop, but it's not like it's not necessarily a story on apartheid. It's a story about a black boy growing up in apartheid. Well, it's not even it's it, and and you know we here again we taking this narrative for us because it's it's not just a black boy; it's a mixed boy, and that has everything to do with that opening act and this idea. So we're talking about apartheid. Let's think about Jim Crow. It's the same system. It, it, it continued longer. You know, Jim Crow started in the United States. You can look to Wilmington, 1898, and get a firm understanding of how Jim Crow came to be. That's essentially what apartheid is. And we're talking 1993. And so what we know about Wilmington, for example, just became like recognized factoid around 2006. So this isn't stuff that we learned. Right. This is a complete experience that has been hidden from us. And so what he's revealing of it, it is for a lot of us, our first exposure to apartheid and what this system is about. And so that opening that opening um, section when he's talking about that act and how, you know, uh, misogynation was ruled out and that was the law and how he's born his his existence as a mere crime is evidence of a crime. That sets a, a, a nasty backdrop for the things that he's about to say, because he's, you know, his whole existence is, is in question all day long. And that's something that, you know, for him to be aware of that, I don't know that I live that deeply in awareness of my selfhood that I was questioning why other people was questioning why I existed. I think that's the, the stage that he that he frames and with that history of the people and the languages, that, that's, I don't think we, we get that because we speak English here. We only hear one language. We don't hear multiple languages. So I don't think we make those connections at, at first glance. But I'm not, not trying to say, Steve, you're not compli- complex enough to understand that. But I just think that stood out to me in terms of how he set that stage. Also, it kind of sets the stage on the why that his mom had to walk behind him like the help and he walks with his baby. I mean, can you really think about that? <laughs> like, like you can't, you can't be seen in public. I, dog, I told you I was questioning his blackness. You understand how rude that is? And you black. I'm looking, and I'm black and I'm just as light as he is. I look like him. And nobody questioned me yeah. as, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, I got called names, but had to walk like, across I got a black mama. I never questioned whether or not, like, in that regard. But to the point, this dude couldn't walk with his mama. Harvey, you said it best. He was evidence of a crime. And so his whole life, he's been invisible, trying trying to be invisible and fit in. He knew he'd blend in. As a child, you're not really cognizant of the environment and the system that you're growing up in. You just growing right. up. He does a really good job in explaining from his point of view these stories at the time that he consumed these experiences. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> the way the way that he he's joking his religious experience. I mean, the dude opens up talking about getting thrown out of a van on the way home from church. Like, 
Like, come on, Steve. Like, that don't get you yeah, attention. That's what I'm saying. That shit sucks. And, and then he was like, and at the end of the day, me and mom just shared a joke about it and everything was fine. Like, that's, <laughs> all, that's what you take away. Like, that's that's what we got. It's like, that's like the view uh, white people like to have about racism. Like, oh, man, that was hard. But at the end of the day, everything's fine. Like, no, nah, man, you got to be fucked up after that happens to you. Oh, he was. I mean, this whole... This whole adaptation of Christianity and what does long suffering mean versus what does prosperity mean? Like that's the to me, that's that's his his other understanding, because he's talking about how his mom is 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 taking the suffering part of this. And he's trying to tell her all these other ways that her relationship with, with the religion can make her more empowering, you know, and she's not trying to hear that part. She wants to suffer. So that's why it's got to be a joke at the end, because <laughs> it's, it's part of her relationship with God. He said, but at black church, I would sit there and what it felt like an eternity trying to figure out why time moves so slowly. It was possible for time to actually even stop. If so, why does it stop at black church and not white church? I eventually decided black people needed more time with Jesus because we suffered more. I'm here to fill up on my blessings for the week, my mama would say. The more time we spent at church, she reckoned the more blessings we occurred, like a Starbucks reward card. <laughs> so so here's what I think is interesting, for, and I could be completely wrong on this, but for us in the Black Americas in, in the States, our church service comes from escaping master. And so that's why we was there all day, because that was the only place we had and it was our that was our refuge, and that was our first social institution. I don't y'all know. Y'all started believing that shit, <laughs> right? 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 That happened later. But to the point, it sounds like the South African experience starts with believing that shit. Like I don't know that it, there's an experience where that 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 culture, that black religious experience has a historical context to it. it. I don't I don't take that away from his reading. You know. Okay, but here, that's my main beef with this, right? Okay. Is okay, that like okay. you just said it sounds like that the South African religious experience starts with that. Like it, it starts right everything there. I learned about apartheid I read in Trevor Noah's book Born a Crime. Like that's it that's problematic. You know what I'm saying? Like right. I'm pretty sure it's more nuanced than that. I'm pretty sure that there's deeper things than that. And and like TL's point you know, when you're like, oh, the mom is, is taking away that suffering, like that's kind of the, the one of my issues with this book is it give it's like the white people fairy tale. It's like, yeah, apartheid was terrible. It was horribly racist. But if you just stay positive, keep going to church and choose to ignore it, everything's going to work out. And it's like, nah, man, like Trevor Noah is like an exceptional dude. Like he's he's smart. He's super funny. Uh, he, you know, he got lucky. He was raised in the right circumstances with his mom and he made it out. But like this picture that is being delivered to this world is just like this very American bootstrappy, pull yourself up, just think positive, just keep on trucking and everything's going to be great. And he don't talk about like friends that he lost or crazy shit that white people did or anything that would alienate a white liberal HBO subscriber. Well, that ain't his, and that's not the point of this book, which is fine. But that when I was coming into this book, I was like, "Oh, I'm gonna learn about this dude." And I'm like, "I didn't really learn about this dude. I heard some stories. He's very good storyteller, but like, I wanted more." I think, I think, I think, I understood the stories because he's that sounds like a black grandmama I had. You know, she wasn't that religious in terms of you know. Well, anyway. That that's the experience, though. The black suffering experience is something that even KSA talked about that in heavy, you know. So that's that I, I connected with it on those lines. What I don't know is if they had like slavery in South Africa. I don't know that. I don't. I'm missing some of that part to understand how they got to the black church. How how did how did their in, introduction with white Christianity? I don't know that. I just assume how it happened, you know. Mm. Steve, you're putting you're putting something on Trevor that Trevor is not doing. He doesn't believe in the religion like the people that were surrounding him believed in it. He constantly goes back to that in the book and throughout the book, like his back and forth with his mom about 
the car not starting. He said, or I say, the Lord knows that today we shouldn't go to church, which is why he made sure the car wouldn't start so that we stay at home as a family and, and take, take the day of rest because even the Lord rested. Oh, uh, that's the devil talking trouble. No, because Jesus is in control. And if Jesus is in control and we pray to Jesus, we should let the car start. But he hasn't. Therefore, no trouble. Sometimes Jesus puts obstacles in your way to see if you can overcome them. Like Job, it could be a test. Oh, yes, mom. But the test could be to see if we are willing to accept what has happened and stay at home and praise Jesus for his wisdom. No, it's the devil's talking. Now go change your clothes. But mom, trouble. <laughs> so trouble. <laughs> no. As she said, son, son, quella. As she said, son, quella. Yes, she said, son, quella. Son, quella is is a phrase. <laughs> Many shades of the meaning. It says, "Don't undermine me, don't underestimate me, and just try me." It's and I wish a nigga would. Hey, Diver, what what does San Quella mean? What does it mean? <laughs> I wish a nigga would. <laughs> he said, I wish a nigga would. <laughs> that is hilarious. That is hilarious, yo. That's a little kid talking, too. That's not that's a the funny. Man. That's the funniest part about the book is his that's commentary a, with his mom where forth, he's just, he's just like, uh, he's being sarcastic with his mom. Yeah, yeah, oh, my gosh. <laughs> To lead a township for the work in the city for any other reason, you have to carry a pass with your ID number. Otherwise, you will be arrested. There was also a curfew. After a certain hour, blacks had to be at home in the townships or risk arrest. My mother didn't care. She was determined never to go home again, so she stayed in the town, hiding and sleeping in public restrooms until she learned the rules of navigating the city from other black women who had contrived to live there. Many prostitutes in the town were... <laughs> I can't even say that word again. <laughs> they spoke my mother's language and showed her how to survive. They taught her how to dress up in a pair of maids overalls and move around the city without being questioned. They also introduced her to white men who were willing to rent their flats in the town. Hmm. <laughs> a lot of these men were foreigners, Germans and Portuguese who didn't care about the law and were happy to sign a lease giving a prostitute a place to live and to work in exchange for steady peace on the side. My mother wasn't interested in such arrangement. Mm -hmm. But thanks to her job, she did have the money to pay the rent. She met a German fellow through one of her prostitute friends, and he agreed to let her in the flat in his name. She moved in and bought a bunch of maids overalls to wear. She was caught and arrested many times for not having her ID on the way home from work, for being in a white area after hours. The penalty for violating the, the past laws was 30 days in jail and a fine of 50 rand, nearly half her monthly salary. She would scrape together the money, pay the fine, and go right back about her business. She's probably just, you know, she's an accountant. I'll bookkeeper. No, and apparently she looked really good. And I can only surmise by reading this book, dog, his mom was probably a prostitute. Not no man. <laughs> you hey the the I was thinking the same thing, but you would never know that from this book. Like he was not gonna say that. No, 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 no. He hit towards it a lot. Come and he on, danced man. around it a say. lot. Because you remember when they when they were when they were in the van, the stereo uh, he said right. the stereotypes of Zulu and Kasa women were ingrained in those men. Zulu women were well behaved, dutiful. Casa women were promiscuous and unfaithful. And here was my mother, his tribal enemy, a Casa woman alone with two small children. One of them mixed child, no less, just a whore, but a whore who sleeps with white men. God was looking at her thinking, like, here she is, she's with a child with one man, and she has another child with another man. Their reputation is okay. known well, as let's... the prostitutes downtown. She did. She wasn't a prostitute. They they were just yeah, all her, all her friends were prostitutes. She had a that's job, right. man. She well, had a job. I mean, I think you bring up a good point. Yeah. And apologies to all seven of our South African listeners. But uh, 
<laughs> I think those are like kind of stereotypes about what the women are over simplifications, like everything in this book. But uh, I, I agree, man. I think she, I think there's more about his mom's story that we didn't hear probably out of respect for his mom. But like, Oh no, yeah. no, no. He brings it up. Yeah. And, I, and of course yeah. I highlighted it. Cause when I was reading, I was like, mm. <laughs> another reference to his mom being a That person. explains it. <laughs> Climbing in the strange yeah. men's cars. Dis- disgusting woman. <laughs> <laughs> They let her go. She couldn't help it. Yeah. <laughs> she won't. She, she, you know, she is. She got out of there, dog. I don't think anything the mom did was a small sacrifice because it sounds like her life was pretty rough. Right. Up. Absolutely. Like, absolutely. I know that. I know that gets later in the book, but she, it sounds like her childhood was, was pretty, uh, was pretty hard. Mm hmm. And uh, I would actually like to hear a lot more about her story. Like, does she like white people? Like, how does she feel about white people? Does it, do do they say that? I mean, she, 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 she was hippies. Right. She's very liberal and free. She She has no restriction on anything. What, what they say she can't do that she does care about white people. I don't think she's necessarily concerned with white people. It's more about her not being restricted. You know, she was. He describes her as a rebel of sorts. You know. Yeah, I was. I, I yeah, I would say she's more rebel uh, rather than not being restricted because she like went out of her way to live where she wasn't yeah. supposed to. And like she didn't. I don't think that she loved the um, his father at all. It was more about mm-hmm. an arrangement that she saw that was beneficial to her. She wanted a child. To love it sounded like something that you know homegirl would do. You know, she wanted a child to love her unconditionally. You know, <laughs> she wanted she want she wanted somebody to love, and you know, she said that. Yeah, and, yeah. and that's exactly what she, she said. You know what, Harvey is? I don't think that she loves his dad. She had respect she for what he represented. Yeah, for his dad. Yeah. And just him as a person, though, and, you know, because she she always goes back to that. She says, Trevor, you are a lot like your dad. And she talks about that in uh, chapter six. It's called Robert. And she talks about, you know, some of the good qualities that he has. She says, you know, you, you remind me a lot of your dad. And she always gives his dad credit, even though his dad was absent. White people. But he wasn't absent because he wanted to be. He was absent because, you know, he had to be. I don't. I don't think he was absent because he had to be. If you if you look up, he could uh, what the laws were as he as you know when Trevor was growing up, like they weren't prosecuting for people uh, for that stuff anymore, and and they weren't enforcing that. I think it was by design. It was like an arrangement, like y'all said, and I think there was no need for him to be in Trevor's life. Trevor hasn't finished the whole experience with his father. You know, he talks about connecting with his dad after being separated from him for a period of time and how his dad had a scrapbook uh, of all this stuff that he's done, you know. Of all his accomplishments. Yeah, when his dad pulled out the scrapbook, he had this big smile on his face and it gave gave relief. Like, oh, okay, so you've been knowing what I've been doing and you've been proud of it. He was accepted by his dad, yeah. I... I question whether or not the dad actually wanted to be involved because it seems like to me he was a resourceful enough man that they could have moved to the well, states. I mean, I think it would only. I mean, they, they could have moved. Like, he, I don't understand I why he was there. You know, his you dad know. and his mom had like a long, meaningful relationship. Like I think they were just together, got pregnant, and then was like, "Well, we're still going to communicate and be cordial, but like no. I'm not in love with you." I don't, I don't think that in a way would have been an option, even though. It probably would have worked out better right. for all of them. And well, I don't know who right. to say that because I mean, but but Donovan, that's what I'm saying. Like I don't I don't think the guy um, wanted to raise Trevor. You know what I mean? Like if that guy wanted to raise Trevor, he could have made that happen. Is what I think. I don't know. I think the mom is in charge of everything, yeah. and it happened the way she wanted it to happen. That too. Like, that too. Yeah, because like you know, most black women ain't gonna let you take their baby away from them. Like that too. Best father on the planet. You ain't taking my baby. I mean, so, that was the whole point of her, her having him is so that she would have something to do. <laughs> the book said, my father isn't on my birth certificate. Officially, he's never been my father. And my mother, true to her word, was prepared for him not to be involved. 
She rented a new flat for herself in Joburg Park, the neighborhood adjacent to Kilbrow, and that's where she took me when she left the hospital. The next week, she went to visit him with no baby. To her surprise, he asked, where is he? You said that you didn't want to be involved, she said, and he hadn't. But once I existed, he realized he couldn't have a son living around the corner and not be a part of the life. So the three of us formed a kind of family as much as a particular situation would allow. I live with my mom and I would sneak around to visit my daddy when we could. So and, and also in the book, she would take him to his daddy every weekend until she married that guy, Abe and uh, Abel. And Abel was jealous that she had some type of relationship with her former person that she was with. So then she had to start sneaking and taking Trevor to see his daddy every other week versus every weekend. And then after yeah. that, I think his dad moved. He lost contact with and yeah. they, and yeah. then he lost contact with his dad. Right. Yeah. And also to put things into perspective, y'all, his dad was right. 46 years old when Trevor was born. Cause you remember when he reconnected with his dad, he was 24 yeah. years old and his dad was 70. So his dad was much, much older than him. Right. And shit, much, much older than his mom. <laughs> hmm. I'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, I'll do it. Come on. Come on. I'll make your mother. <laughs> I'm not going to be here when this is over. You need to understand. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to be here when this is over. You know, like, do we have a clear understanding? Is everything? Hey, no, no funny business. Let's go into chapter three for a second. And I want to talk about how brainwashed uh, because- these South Africans Go ahead, man. Go ahead, man. Go ahead. Man. That's Steve's point, though. Steve's point makes you talk like that. You know, that's 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 part of the that's part of what makes me I, I I get where Steve is coming from, and and that's that goes back into it's weird, man. It's weird to hear these stories and how how colorful he is at telling the story, and it's sometimes it does seem like the white the white comedian is poking a little too much fun at the black folks. Like I I, I felt like that. At times, but it's still the shit is hilarious, man. Go ahead, man. Go ahead. <laughs> if it's reality, yeah. it's reality. It's not reality. You know, it's you know, marketing. You don't think his agents and his publicists yeah. went through this book? <laughs> you think he just wrote this and sent it out? Like, come on, man. <laughs> this, this probably wasn't even his idea. <laughs> <laughs> that that kind of lends itself to one of the reasons why right, um, right. Dave Chappelle stepped down. He was like, hold on, hold on. Y'all motherfuckers laughing way too hard at this joke. This wasn't really the punchline, but y'all laughing way too hard at this area and so, of the joke. And I, and not I know I thought off of my bullshit about <laughs> you know? Team Light Skin, but I think I meet Trevor Noah when Dave Chappelle is going off. And I think I remember him being like the other voice. And I'm going like, wait a minute, dude. Like, wait a minute. Wait. Like, Dave just got away from this shit. Now, who are you? Like, wait a minute. Now, you got to be balanced with this shit. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, you better you better come with this shit. You, you can't, you can't, you can't leave all the jokes on the black people, man. And so, I, I, it took me a minute to warm up to Trevor Noah, you know, because of that, what happened, what you just mentioned about Dave Chappelle. And so, how, how he tells these stories, they are funny as hell, but it, it, you got to be careful how you say that, though, Lenny, because that's. <laughs> but but he's not like so. So so he's not glorifying at all to me the beautiful, intelligent, rich history of African women. Like, I don't get that. I don't get that from his his narrative. Mm. You know, what I'm saying? and I don't know if that's a South African mm. thing, because how he was raised you know what I'm saying? I don't I don't know, you know, but like there's no admin no admiration for the struggle of these women. It's just comedy there. Yeah. That's that's an excellent point. And maybe that's why there's no real stories about there's no real stories about anybody outside of his immediate family. Right. Right? Like there's nothing there's nothing there's nothing that, that's else. That's what I was except, about to say. What? It does he, I mean, he, he does glorify oh, his mom. Okay. 
But it's not a cultural thing. It's just no. my mom is this, you know, and I get it. I get it, but it's that's what makes yeah, it okay. I get Steve's rub. Like I truly get it. Yeah. It's so it's so inauthentic. It's like, man, if I had to reflect on other people's conditions around me and 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 paint their character in a real way, like the stain of apartheid would be all over that. Racism would be all over that. It affects everyone's uh, every minutia throughout their lives. And like he couldn't reference that. Like imagine growing up in apartheid South Africa as a mixed kid coming to America and being famous and write you write a book about your life. And it's universally loved by white people at all. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's crazy. That's racism. And, that, and that's why he does because he doesn't. And that's, and, that, mm. and that's why I didn't you like. That's, that's why I didn't like point, him, Stephen Harvey. That's exactly why I didn't. Why I didn't like the dude when he first came wow. out because I felt like it was this light skinned shit where he was going to appeal to these white folks, joking on us. Another safe joke. But I love this story, though. I just I still think it's funny as hell how he's telling these stories. Like I've I've come to appreciate because then too, I've learned I've learned to appreciate the millennial mindset, and I think for all intents purposes, he he's still a millennial, even though he went through apartheid. So this shit's crazy. You know, millennials have no respect for their elders. He has no respect for his elders, man. Tell the story about his grandma and the shit. This dude shitted in the house, man. <laughs> yes. Man. Hold on. Hey, let me let me say this. It says uh, Tuesday nights the prayer meeting came to my grandmother's house. I was always excited for two reasons. One, I got to clap along on the beat for the singing, and two, I love to pray. My grandmother always told me she loved my prayers. She believed my prayers were more powerful because I prayed in English. Everyone knows that Jesus, who is white, <laughs> speaks English. The Bible was in English. Yes, the Bible was not written in English, but the Bible came to South Africa in English. So to us in English, which made my prayers the best prayers because English <laughs> prayers get answered first. How do we know this? Look at white people. Clearly, they're getting through to the right person. Steve, <laughs> <laughs> I don't mean, I mean absolutely no disrespect to my ancestors. But as a light-skinned kid with my people, I felt that. I felt that. I felt that they listened to me and looked at it. the whole way he describes his interaction with his elders is how I felt when I interacted with certain people in my family. And his story triggered something because I had forgot about that feeling. Like they don't they don't quite know how to treat you. Right. Like I was like they looked up to me because I was like and they and they put me out there like they expected things of me. Mm-hmm. And like, 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 even when I went to college, excuse me, when I left college and went to Indiana, my great aunt told me, <laughs> listen to this shit, Steve, listen to this shit. My great aunt told me when I went to Indiana to go find me an Indian girl so we can have pretty light skinned babies with pretty hair, pretty dark, yeah, pretty dark, curly hair, because I'm light skinned. My mama looks like that. You know, but my mom, I mean, I'm saying so, so, so when he's telling that story that resonated with me, you know, then there's a, there's a scene, there was a movie called, there was a show called Hell on Wheels and it was about the the railroad moving West and um, Common is in it. And so Common plays this, this character named, <laughs> named Ilium. And there's a flashback where he has to read the Bible in front of his slave masters. And then he goes read the Bible in front of his his peoples. And you can see the whole thing around a black kid knowing his place, a light skinned black kid being privileged to education, but having to play dumb, but then have to go around his people and be looked up to because he had a tool that they didn't have. So, like, I got all of that. But it's like this young kid don't understand that. He just laughing at the shit, you know. <laughs> and, and it's normal to him, so he just make jokes with it. Yeah, he, yeah. He's like, yeah, they told me sit in the back seat, so I sat in the back seat. Yeah, it's, it's funny to him, but it's like, damn, like, 
He talking about they ain't want to beat on him because he bruised. Like, I remember that. I remember that. <laughs> but that goes that goes to your point, Harvey. I just think that that light skin thing was rubbed in through the system of racism right. and it had them shook. Not only was it the color, the color of his skin, it was the way his mother was raising him. His mother wasn't raising him with all those restrictions that his cousins and his his grandmother had. Because further on in the book, we find out that his grandmother didn't raise his mother. His mother left because she wanted to go be with her dad. She found out that her dad didn't want her. So she grew up in a house with this lady with 14 other kids. They used to have to work it and fighting for scraps. She went about that life. She She wanted something better. Well, yeah, her, her, the mom sounds very metropolitan, right? The rest of his family sounds a little country, if we want to put how, it in, like, American vernacular. Yeah. I mean, he, he talks about how how dysfunctional, like, the the, the infrastructure of the, the town is, how you start off with a piece of land and you build a wall, and you just keep building wall after wall until you have a, a four walls. You have, you know, then you build a roof and then you get a house and then you build a, a, a garage. And you know, how you just keep piecing things together because there's no no infrastructure, no upper mobility during apartheid. Like, again, like we're talking about 93, man. I was playing varsity football in 93. I'm going to think about it. Like, I remember like school days and these movies and they was mentioned in South Africa, but I, I don't know that I knew what was going on, you know, Rodney King and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, but I don't know that I knew what was happening like that during this time period. So, so Harvey, your freshman year in high school, no, your sophomore year in high school, you was on the varsity team? My freshman year, I was on the varsity team. Oh, excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> 13 years old on the varsity team. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I remember being with my my dad's people. These are the dark people, my dad's people. And and um they weren't backwards. Don't get me wrong, they weren't backwards at all, but they were much more spiritual. Okay? They were much more spiritual and they were much more into making things happen on your own. Very religious, very disciplined, very routine. And man, they just they just loved me. I was the light one in the family. They loved me, man. But they won't they didn't have no, no problem putting hands on me though. They would beat my ass. Party. Don't get that part twisted. They would they'd tighten me up if I needed to. Yeah, dog. So do you think that you got special attention because you were light skinned? Or do you think you got special attention because you could hold an adult conversation at a young age and Both. they they saw something precocious about you? Okay, because sometimes we always contribute one thing to to something that's pretty that's not the primary reason. And sometimes we think it is the primary reason we elevate it. Kind of like with race, white and black people. Is it the color of our skin or is it that we're black and we have this culture and they're white and sometimes they have that culture? Sometimes you can have a white person that has our culture and fit right in. Then you can have a black guy that has somebody else's culture and they don't fit in. Kind of like what he talks about right. in this uh, chapter about language. He says, hey, you know, language, when you speak somebody's language, that totally uh, defies the whole concept of racism. They look at you and they're like, oh, you don't look like me, but you want to. Yeah, buy. that's some bullshit. I mean, that's a beautiful story. I, I get it, but nah, it, that, that, it ain't going to save you. It's not going to save you. There's a moment when you just fit the description and you don't get your ass beat. And it's just that simple. And you're not gonna be, able, you're not gonna be able to talk your way out of it. So when he was talking about that part in the book, I was going back to heavy and how right. heavy uh, Kiese's mom was uh, was hell bent on speaking the king's language in America. In America, because somewhere in her mind, right. she thought if she speaks like them, then they would they would be a little bit more right. lenient because they but, would think that she's a part of it. So, so, but look at how. You try to diminish the role of, of of color plays and skin color plays, but Kiese, a darker, big dude, he, he realizes early, don't matter how well he speaks, he's going to catch it. Well, Trevor, being a light-skinned dude, he's able to be a chameleon in many spaces. 
So even though he's not able to be able to fit in and be the star of his spaces, he's able to blend into the background and use language to his advantage. I still think the point that he's making is beautiful. And I do uh, wish and, you know, that we spent more time learning multiple languages because we can speak multiple languages. I think it's dope. I think it's, I think I don't I, he's very intelligent to be able to do that. Yeah, his mom did a good job sure. uh, preparing him and equipping him with all the tools that he needs to be successful. In, Absolutely. In, in all of these spaces. Absolutely. And it's, it's probably, you know, her her struggle in general and her search for stability that she's been searching for her whole life. You know, she's like very intentional about having him, very intentional about raising him and intentional about like, you know, my son is not is not going to uh, have to like learn the hard way. Uh, he, he, I'm going to teach him what he needs to do. Damn right. Because after I throw him out this bus, he going to know the hard way, damn it. Once I throw him. He gonna, <laughs> and he got a rough and grown ass man. He, 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 he gonna know the hard way. He gonna know these streets. He gonna want these books. <laughs> I want to move real quick to, to chapter six. It opens up talking about why his mom had him. She says this in chapter six, and then she says the same thing. She opens up with the same thing in chapter five. So in chapter five, she says in the first sentence, she says. My mother used to tell me, I chose to have you because I wanted something to love and something that would love me unconditionally in return. Chapter six opens up the same way. My mother used to tell me, I chose to have you because I wanted something to love, something that would love me unconditionally in return. And then I gave birth to the most selfish piece of shit on <laughs> earth that I ever did. That all he ever did was to cry and eat and shit and say, me, 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 me. <laughs> No, you got to admit, I love how he illustrates oh, the relationship between him and his mom. And it's like, it's just the two of them, her and him against the world. And sometimes you forget right. that there's a little brother in this because in the it's opening scene, his little yeah. brother is with him. So that tells me that Abel was in his life at that time. So Abel got them out there going to church by themselves, hitching rides and shit. But this is 1993, so you can't call somebody that. on the cell phone and say, that. come and get me. No, but Abel used to try to control them. So this is quite possible he knew they was going to church. Right. And he was like, you ain't getting my fucking call, lady. <laughs> you go pray to your God, your stupid God. You go pray to the stupid yeah. white man God. You better not use one ounce of my gosh. No gosh for the Take white man's God. You pray for your God. Still a woman. <laughs> so this chapter it kind of goes into his behavior and he's setting it up uh on the things he used to do i used to crave constant stimulation and activity my mom used to take me to the park so she could burn off the energy she would take a frisbee and throw it and i would run and catch it and bring it back over and over and over sometimes she'd throw a tennis ball black people's dogs don't play fetch you don't throw anything to a black person's dog unless it's food it wasn't only when I started spending time in the parks with white people with their pets that I realized my mom was training me like a dog. <laughs> <laughs> oh, like, oh, you don't know what I'm doing? Okay, go run and get the ball. Yeah, go run and get it again. You that energy? Let me throw a really, really, really ball. Okay. You ain't tired yet? Oh, hold on. Let me get this first <laughs> <laughs> because you know everything to a kid is normal growing up until they learn that it's not like, like even that situation where, it, where he has to walk behind his mom and across street from his dad like I'm, I'm pretty sure that didn't seem out of the ordinary to him until he until later in life because kids think everything is how they're supposed to be till they you know they find out it's not that kind of goes into what I was saying earlier you know to him that was normal he learned how to navigate in that handicap. And also in this chapter, this is when he was going back and forth with his mom and <laughs> she was um, writing him letters <laughs> and he would respond back with another letter. So in terms of like how he was raised to go back to what we were saying, she gave him the liberty to be expressive. So imagine when you go somewhere where it's strict discipline. No, kids are to be seen and not heard. He didn't buy into that concept. He narrated 
his thought process when he would go around his cousins and his grandmother. Man, he told his mama that she should not be upset with how he performed because <laughs> she was a naughty girl and whatever he's doing, he's getting it from her. <laughs> she said, your school marks this term has been very disappointing. Your behavior in class continue to be disruptive and disrespectful. It's clear from your actions you do not respect me. You do not respect your teachers. Learn to respect the women in your life. The way you treat me and the way you treat your teachers will be the way you treat other women in the world. Learn to buck that trend now and you will be a better man because of it. Because of your behavior, I'm grounding you for one week. There will be no television and no video games. Sincerely, Mom. I, of course, found this punishment completely unfair. I take the letter and confront her. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Can, I, can I speak to you about this? No, I did not want to reply. You have to write a letter. I go to my room, get out my pen, and sit at my little desk and go after her arguments one by one <laughs> to whom it may concern. Dear mom, first of all, it has been particularly a rough time in school. And for you to say that my marks are bad is extremely unfair, especially considering the fact that yourself was not very good in school. And I, after all, a product of yours. So in part, you are to blame because you are not good in school. So why should I be good in school? Because genetically, we're the same. Grant always talks about how naughty you were. So obviously, my naughtiness comes from you. So I don't think it's right or just for you to say any any of this. Did, did, you, did you feel like that growing up? Did you ever have that feeling? No. <laughs> absolutely. I bet, I bet you are a badass absolutely. kid growing up. Like. Dog, my mom used to say, Lenny, I need you to go upstairs and clean your room, and it needs to be immaculate when I come upstairs and check. I'd be standing in her room while she's giving me these <laughs> orders and looking at shit everywhere in her room, and I used to look around, and I'd be like, okay, I'm going to make it just as immaculate as this room is. I'm going to use this as my guide. I would leave out, go upstairs, and she would follow my ass upstairs. <laughs> <laughs> and knocked the shit out of me. <laughs> my mama was like, exactly. I do as I say, exactly. not as I do. <laughs> you know what that told me? I told that told me that my mom was flawed and she had a lot of self-awareness to know that she was flawed. So she was like, Look, don't do what I do. You need That's to be how better my pops than me. Was. That's exactly how my pops was, man. Foot in the ass for that very reason. Don't be like me. <laughs> <laughs> Every psychologist who examined me came back and said, there's nothing wrong with this kid. I wasn't ADD. I wasn't a psychopath. I was just creative and independent and full of energy. But the therapist did give me a series of tests and they came to the conclusion that <laughs> I was either going to be an excellent criminal or a very good at catching criminals because I had always find loopholes in the law. Whenever I thought a rule wasn't logical, I'll make my way around it. The rules about communion and Friday mass, for example, made absolutely no sense. And as I'm reading oh. this, I'm thinking about this had <laughs> exactly. to be Steve. Exactly. Steve. exactly. And I can't believe that this was the key because you are this to this day. We're being there for hours of kneeling, standing, sitting, kneeling, standing, <laughs> sitting, kneeling, standing, sitting. And by the end of it, I'll be starving. But I was never allowed to, to partake in a communion because I wasn't Catholic. The other kids ate Jesus' body and drank Jesus' blood, but I couldn't. And Jesus' blood was grape juice. I love grape juice. Grape well, juice it was the best. What it more was could a kid want? It was <laughs> and then, yeah, yeah. They wouldn't let me have any. I argued with the <laughs> nuns and the priests all the time. So... Only Catholics can eat Jesus's body and drink Jesus's blood, right? Yes, but Jesus wasn't Catholic. No, Jesus was Jewish. Well, yes. So you telling me that if <laughs> Jesus walked into your church right now, Jesus would not be allowed to have the body and blood of Jesus? Well, uh, um, they never had a satisfactory reply. 
So one morning before mass, I decided I'm going to get me some of that Jesus blood and Jesus body. I snuck, I snuck behind the altar and drank the entire bottle of grape juice. He was an asshole, and I ate dog. the entire an bag of the yeah. Eucharist. Thank <laughs> <laughs> for all the time that I could. Because he felt entitled. He an That's why he was an asshole that felt entitled and, and, and felt emboldened by his mother. In my mind, I wasn't breaking the rules because the rules didn't make any sense. So there ain't no rules because I don't comprehend them and they don't make sense that's to me. That's, hard. that's how I think, though. That's, that's, that's how, exactly and how I, I think, though. That's hard, man. <laughs> yeah. Hey. And I got caught only because they broke their own rule. Another kid ratted me out in confession and the priest turned, it, uh, turned me in. No, no, no. I protested. You broken the rule. That's confidential information. The priest isn't supposed <laughs> to repeat what you say in confession. And they didn't care. The school could break whatever rules they wanted. The principal laid it to me. What kind of sick person would eat all of Jesus' body and eat all of Jesus' blood? <laughs> A hungry person? <laughs> no. No, he does a really good job in sandwiching his life and these little nuances oh, behind humor. Oh, you gotta love that part about the book. And so, Steve, when you when you jump in and you start um, berating the book <laughs> and criticizing, heavy criticizing the book, sometimes I think that you read this book and you say, "Fuck, I could have did this shit, and I would have did this, and I would have did this if this was my book, and I would have did this if this was my book, and I would have did a little bit more of this." And he didn't do a little yeah, bit more. Partially, part. It's it ain't not- your book. I, I I don't want to wait. I don't want to read a commercial. Uh, I don't want to read a marketing device for a show for eight hours. I just don't want to do it. Like I, I don't want to do it. That's what that's my issue. Like I want to. You remember the part uh, when he starts talking about his dad and he goes to meet his dad as an adult, and uh, he's like, you know, I met him one time and everything was great, and I left feeling an inch taller, and I was like, oh man, I'm gonna build this great relationship with my dad. I'm going to go back and I'm going to interview him. And then he goes back to his dad and he starts pounding his dad with questions. And his dad's like, yo, what are you doing? Like, is this an interrogation? And he's like, well, you know, I want to get to know you. And so I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions and you're going to tell me answers and I'm going to get to know you. And his dad's like, "Nah, man, you're not going to get to know me like that. Why don't you just spend some time with me? And so then he just stops the interview, spends some time with his dad. And at the end of the session with his dad, his dad is like, Okay, now that you're going home, uh, what did you learn about me? And Trevor's like, well, I don't think I learned anything because you're just a really secretive person. And his dad's like, see, you learned something about me that that I'm secretive. See, you're getting to know me already. Right. But like in this book, in this book, I don't know anything about Trevor Noah as a person. I don't know. I know his stories. I know I know stuff that I could see on his stand up. I know stuff that I could hear on The Daily Show, but I don't know anything about this dude at all. But before we even get past chapter one, he's already the, the smartest kid at school. He's the fastest kid at school. And he's the funniest kid at school within one paragraph of reading this book. <laughs> His whole family treats him special. It's like, I can tell that story. It'd be like, yeah, here's the thing. Here's the thing about me as a kid. I was hilarious. I was so fat. <laughs> I was dunking on motherfuckers. Everybody in the city knew that I was like the best. Everybody knew me. I knew all the languages. (laughs) I went everywhere. When I went to when I went to the Catholic school, I went to the Catholic school. All the white people went and they got with me and they got salty. They was like, they got with the black kids. Them, he said, right. yeah, them my people. And they was like, oh, man. So when you get tired of them niggas, you can come back over here right. and hang out with the cool kids. He's like, right. It's the smart kids. Much so like had, his life. Right. Chuck much Chuck like his had, life I, today, he's the funniest, <laughs> smartest, coolest guy around. It's like, all right, we got it. I mean, that's. Y'all one of them academic nah, gift with, classes, man. Said, that's how it was. When Trevor, it was an academic <laughs> gift when Trevor Noah was like, when he retires and he's like 60 years old and he's facing mortality, he going to write another book about his life and it's not going to be like this. And I'll read that book. 
Dog, that what did was you the say, experience Harvey, about gifted classes. That was the experience when you've been in a gifted class. You was you was isolated it, from your peoples, and you would be looking back, and you'd be like, well, "Why am I here? Why I'm not with them?" And you question the whole thing. I mean, I, I found that very interesting. That he's placed in this this opportunity. Um, I'm use that word loosely, but you know, to to be in the accelerated educational program. And he didn't like the fact that he was, you know, the only, you know, kid of his kind in there. He wanted to be with the rest of the black folks. And so he left that track to go be with the black folks so he can go clown. Now, I, I, again, I, I know that feeling, you know. So I, I that part I guess it I, it's very real. But, but to the point, I do think it's, it's a story that's easily told and it's funny as hell. Hope you enjoyed please click the subscribe button to whatever podcast platform you're listening to. And remember to stay tuned in, stay learning, and keep reading.